Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, it's the stretch run. We're well into September now. Uh, how, how have you been doing, and how have you been enjoying baseball lately? It's It's the fun time of year. Oh, my God. I love it. You know, I live in New Jersey where the weather is gorgeous right now. I mean, most people don't think about that, but it is. And I'm enjoying coaching my son's baseball uh, fall leagues, and they're doing great. Um, So I'm very excited about that. It's just a wonderful time of year. I know Um, in the Major League Baseball side, you know, pennant races or at least some a couple of playoff, you know, most of the teams are sort of it looks like they're settled, but it's still fun to watch. Like, ooh, Padres, ooh, Brewers, which one's going to make the out? You know, there's a few races going on that I think are interesting at this time of year as well. So we're definitely in the home stretch, and it is interesting to watch. Just be a fan. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think with the expanded playoffs, it maybe has me checking the standings a little bit less because it because it does seem a little bit more decided, like you're saying. Um uh, the I guess oof, I hadn't even looked at the uh, at what's going on in the standings much recently. I just pulled them up and wow, the Twins are really six games back now, huh? Uh oh, yikes! Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in both leagues, things are starting to solidify a little bit. Mostly fighting for seeding. Yeah, that San Diego Milwaukee is a race still, and I guess there's an outside shot of the Orioles charging into this with a with a late run here, but. It seems like things are pretty determined. It's just going to be fighting for spots. On the other hand, though, there's been some incredible individual stories that have been fun to watch. You know, even if I'm not checking the standings every night, I am checking the box scores for Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani and seeing what those guys are doing. It's, yeah, definitely the, the fun part of the year here. Um, and plenty yeah. to look forward to, even if, you know, even if your team's not in it. The, the D-backs, they've been really fun the last few weeks. And it's, I'm not a diehard D-backs fan by any means, but I'm living here in Arizona. I have a lot of friends who are, and it's fun to see them all get excited. You know, this like late season youth movement, they're looking forward to 2023 with some optimism. That's fun to see. And it, it it's a fun time. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. complain about too many different times of the baseball calendar, but this is a particularly fun time for, I think, just about everyone. Yeah, and it's fun to see, you know, stars that may have been cold suddenly step stepping up and heating up, like Boba Shet we were talking about earlier. Um, he's been on a tear. You know, he started off really cold and he's just you know, gone, he went nuts for a week, <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay. Cause like, you know, it's one to see like a playoff team, like the blue Jays have their stars step up and say, okay, now let's get serious guys. So that's, that's just, I, I enjoy watching that happen. Definitely. And so even with some of these competitive teams, maybe they're looking for their fans are watching for their spot in the race or whether guys like that can get it going again. The less competitive teams are looking for these glimpses of the future. You know, the, the fall league rosters were just announced. I'm excited about that living out here in Arizona with what prospects I'm going to get to see. Uh, but on top of all that, and, and this is a, an excellent transition into our first topic of the episode is there's been a whole lot of like league wide news that's come out these last couple of weeks. I don't know if, I don't know if this is normal or not. Like, I guess we haven't had a normal season the last few years to really be able to kind of gauge, you know, when this kind of stuff usually drops. It feels like more like off-season news, but we're getting it all in August, September. It's it's weird. Um, I guess part of that uh, is, you know, there's some rule change news and stuff like that, and that was just negotiated in the last CBA that uh, that they don't need to provide a full year 
of uh, of notice for for rule changes. I think Manfred's committee can implement them with like a 45 day notice or something like that. So that's maybe why it's happening now instead of in the off season prepping for the following season. Um, but let's let's just jump into some of the news here. Um, starting out with something I just want to touch on. I'm not sure it's incredibly relevant to baseball trade values itself or anything we're doing on the site necessarily, but it's big, big news is the minor leaguers have unionized. Um, I won't pretend to be a labor law expert or to fully understand all of the steps that took place to get to this point, but it's a big deal and it's going to be some, it's going to mean some sweeping changes for minor leaguers. However, uh, However things shake out logistically, however this union actually forms and, and whatever collective bargaining actually takes place here in the coming weeks, months, whatever the time frame looks like. There's still a ton of questions, especially again for, for someone <laughs> like me, and I don't want to speak for you specifically, but I don't think you're hiding a law degree that I don't know about. Um, so a lot, lot more questions and answers for us right now, but it's worth noting. It's a big deal. It's going to be good for the minor leaguers and... I guess you could squint and make some arguments that it could impact the major leaguers in either a positive or negative way, but I think it's probably safer to just sit back, let let things happen, and see where we are when the dust settles. Yeah, a lot of uh, minor leaguers obviously turn into major leaguers, so it's good that they unify in that sense, uh, because it really should be all one body, in my view. Uh, but secondly, it's sort of the last, the latest sign of a trend that's been happening, which is that you know, the minor leaguers were sort of, you know, the news was really bad. Like they were not getting paid. Their diets were terrible. They were sleeping on floors, you know, just kind of just, you know, ugly conditions. And there's been some movement to finally rectify that. And our teams have stepped up with better housing. And this is another step towards that end as well. Gives them a lot more leverage to kind of fight for things uh, to be, you know, paid a little bit more, treated a little bit better. So that's good for them. Yeah. And one of the, uh, one of the things I've seen pop up a lot is a lot of studies over the last few years that have been conducted to kind of investigate what it would actually cost to pay all of the minor leaguers in a system a better salary and guarantee housing and food and, and things like that. And most estimates are, are fairly low in terms of like relative dollars. Like it's a ton of money. It's millions of dollars. But it, I've seen estimates in like the four to 10 million range per team per year, which is like an, a middle reliever or two these days <laughs> like that's what it would cost each team yeah. to to improve these working conditions and living conditions so drastically for their employees and on the one hand you could argue oh okay we know how owners work that's going to be five to ten million dollars that comes out of the major league budget and so we might see an impact there or you could argue that you know maybe it's going to leave the major league budget alone maybe teams will realize that this is really an investment in their organization's future treating these players better and, and we could see we could see results from the minor league systems themselves we could see players improve and develop at a, at a better rate as some of their off-field needs are met and they can just focus on baseball year-round so big deal a whole lot of questions that still need to be answered all around uh, i think it's a it's a pretty i would say it's a it's a very good thing a very good change um but it might have some impact at the major league level and i don't think anybody's gonna know what that looks like until it happens you yeah i agree but it's all good <laughs> okay the uh, one other quick piece of news i want to touch on is there was a uh 
an article written by Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. I'll go ahead and link it in the show notes. um, Detailing how the bonus pool will be allotted for pre-arbitration players. Um, If you remember, this was a big new chunk of the uh, new CBA that was agreed to right before the season started. And it essentially is divvying up a, a pool of bonus money among the most valuable or or highest performing players. I guess that's a better way to put it. Uh, highest performing players who are not yet arbitration eligible. And so it's a $50 million pool. And I'll, I won't go too in-depth on how it's specifically divided. Um, I'll go ahead and point you to the, the link in the description in the show notes uh, for that information. Uh, but it's largely based on war, based on a war formula that was jointly created by the Major League uh, Baseball Players Association as well as the league. And the main thing I wanted to point out here is just that this isn't money that is directly coming from the team. So uh, as of the time of this reporting, as of September 1st, um, Sean Murphy of the A's was leading pre-arbitration players in that joint war, and he would reportedly receive the highest bonus of anybody but that bonus isn't coming from the a's so it's not as if we have to tack that into his salary calculation on the site and we have to factor that into his trade value the bonus pool is it it comes from all of the different teams they all pay into it and it's kind of its own thing (laughs) it's it's, so it's not specifically that oh now the a's are going to have to pay murphy three million three million more dollars and now it's going to impact necessarily going to directly impact his arbitration salaries going forward or anything like that Uh, this really shouldn't have any impact whatsoever on trade value um, as far as i can tell (laughs) Um, so i just wanted to kind of get that out there there's not really a whole lot else on it it's just going to be something new for us to kind of learn and get used to every year and but i I don't think it's going to have anything any real impact here on the site no i think you're right i can't figure out how it could either because it's not coming out of the team's budget and that's the key point exactly yeah Okay, that's those are kind of the quick hits. Uh, some of the big news, as I mentioned earlier, some rules changes. There were a handful of them. The biggest are that beginning in 2023, uh, MLB is going to implement a pitch clock as well as limit defensive shifts. Um, there's also going to be larger bases and uh, I believe some other you know minor pace of play type things. Uh, within that pitch clock rule, there's limitations on pickoff attempts, uh, on <laughs> on walk-up music and how long that can go in between at-bats. A whole bunch of minutiae within there. But the biggest thing, at least at a first glance here, I think the pitch clock is going to be a huge deal for the sport and, and its enjoyability and, and pace of play. Not necessarily so much on the trade value side, unless, you know, if there is a guy who's consistently violating the pitch clock rule, yeah, maybe that's a little less attractive. You know, Pedro Baez, maybe his market falls a little bit here. Um, but I, I don't think there's anything too significant, uh, from a value perspective there, but defensive shifts are interesting. So essentially going forward, teams are going to have to have, uh, I believe the wording is at least two infielders, uh, on each side of second base and on the infield. So you're not going to have second baseman or in deep right field or excuse me shallow right field anymore in the overshift or a third baseman hopping over there or anything or you know two infielders on the left side and then the second baseman also playing a little bit to the left of second base or uh, for against a righty we're not gonna have any of those extreme overshifts anymore um there will be some limitations on 
exactly where players can stand. And so the question is, does that reintroduce some value to second baseman, specifically glove first second baseman or just or just positive defensive second baseman? Because one trend that John and I have noticed over the years is that second basemen just don't get paid as much as, as other positions, whether it's in terms of trades, they don't return necessarily what their value should if if they played a different position or on the free agent market. They don't get paid as well as other positions do relative to their, their value, their projected war, things like that. And it's typically because of how much of their value is defensive and how much teams are haven't been prioritizing second base defense over the years. So they figure they can just hide somebody like a Mike Moustakis over there. And if they shift properly, then it's not going to be a big deal. Um, we might see that reduced now, though. And I, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's totally gone because, A, I don't think there were that many of those Mike Moustakis types who are just kind of iron glove and you stick them at second base to, to completely hide them there. But also, I, and this is kind of, <laughs> from a personal standpoint, one of my minor gripes with the, the shift rules uh, is that there's nothing stopping a team from basically doing the same shifts just to a slightly less aggressive extent. You know, you can still stick your shortstop or second base, depending on which which handed hitter is up there. You can still stick them essentially right behind the second base bag. And yeah, it's not going to be quite as efficient, but you still are able to cover a lot of that ground where you expect the ball to be hit. And so, yes, maybe there's a higher emphasis on some second base range, but I'm not entirely sure it's going to make a massive difference on the market. That's at least my initial take. I could be very wrong here. I'd be interested to hear what you think, John. Yeah, and just to start off with kind of a crazy idea, uh, some teams, I think, and some people are speculating that teams will get creative and say, move the right fielder in to that spot where, you know, the shortstop was playing kind of in mid right field. Um, and then maybe have two outfielders. So the center fielder kind of moves over a bit, the right fielder moves in. <clears throat> and so you still kind of get the benefits of that. Now, I'm, I, that's just total speculation, but that's one idea. Um, I've also heard about like, yeah, the short, like when the pitch is, you know, I, I'm not sure at what point you can move, but I think it's probably at the release point where the pitcher just sort of gives up the ball. You can see like a fast shortstop maybe sliding over a little bit more to kind of, you know, make the adjustment on the fly. Um, but in any case, yeah, we don't know uh, how that will affect the trade value of second baseman, for example, until we actually see it in, in action. Um, you know, we'll see a little bit of it on the free agent market this off offseason. Um, there will probably be a few instances where we say, hmm, okay. <laughs> um and that's a leading indicator of like how teams value that. Uh, I've seen some early sort of projections on how it might change. Um, the basic one is it increases the range of a second baseman. Kind of to your point, Josh, the, um, the second baseman may have to move around. Like on a paper, if it's just a standard sort of, you know, everybody playing their position thing, you know, he's going to have to cover a little bit more ground. So that does increase the range. And then skills like speed become, you know, uh, a little bit more important. Skills like, you know, how strong is your arm, you know, become a little bit more important. Because up to this point, when you're hiding a guy in the shift, or be it Mike Moustakis or somebody else, Tom Estella, you know, they didn't really have to move much, you know, and they didn't have to throw very far. So now you might have to... You know, more Colton Wong types who are kind of rangy and kind of throwing off, you know, Derek Jeter style, you know, uh, you know, kind of just making more interesting plays. That'll be one of the benefits. But you also made a good point. Like, I don't see too many um, 
you know, of those types, really, uh, because second baseman has been a very fluid position. You know, people are mixing and matching quite a bit with that position these days. Uh, they've kind of taken the, you know, the Dodgers sort of playbook of, of throwing a lot of different guys in different places. That's um, become more and more the norm. So to have just second base only, I'm thinking like Cesar Hernandez, for example, yeah, those are kind of the exceptions now rather than the rule. And then the other thing I've seen is, you know, a guy like Andres Jimenez of Cleveland is really a shortstop who's playing second base because they have so many infielders and Rosario does a fine job shortstop. They basically have a second shortstop at second. And some teams are doing that as well. So you can't really see, can't really think of a guy like Andres Jimenez as a 2B only because he can definitely play good shortstop. So for all of those reasons, I don't see necessarily any sort of reason to change the way our kind of formula works, where we're sort of saying, okay, the market to value the second base glove first types, glove only types, uh, unless we see some meaningful change, which is too early to tell. Yeah. One other idea I've seen floated a little bit is uh, that this could interact well with the universal DH, actually. And maybe National League teams, now that they have that DH spot in the lineup and they can put more of a slugger, get more offense out of that spot, maybe they're now more willing to go a little bit more glove first at second base now that they have kind of the length in the lineup from the DH. I don't think that's a huge impact. I don't think that we'll see that necessarily uh, affecting things too much because I think all of the points you just raised and just that, like you say, there aren't too many complete lumbering second baseman anyway that would theoretically need to be replaced in something like this and you know maybe if you think your shortstop is good enough to cover up the extra ground and you don't have to mess with your second baseman or whatever um one area where i could maybe a little bit see it changing is kind of more roster construction where lately it seems like a lot of teams are and this could i could be off on this i could be you know, West Coast bias or whatever. <laughs> but it seems like I'm seeing more teams uh, be a little bit more liberal with their backup infield position, you know, their their bench infielder. It's usually more of a utility guy these days, you know, a, a Chad Pinder for the A's, or I'm thinking a Ledmis Diaz for the, uh, for the Astros. Uh, even maybe Dylan Moore, I, I guess he's a solid defender for the, the Mariners. Um, but it's you're not seeing as many of the Brendan Ryan types where they are just a superb defensive player that can play a few positions and that's kind of their job. I wonder if with these rules we maybe see a bit of a return to that. You know, a guy that you really can stick in in the late innings, either at shortstop or second base, and cover that extra ground now that it's so much more important and you can't move the guy all the way over. You might need those extra feet of range in the in the late innings with a one or two run lead. So I can maybe see a little bit of that. I don't think that's going to have any kind of trade value impact because the reason those guys, those glove first players aren't really worth a ton anyway is just because there are so many of them. Because there's so many that could be freely picked up basically any time on a minor league deal or something close to it or on a waiver claim or whatever that there's no real competition. You know, there's a surplus of supply compared to demand. And even if demand raises a little bit, rises a little bit for guys like that, I think the surplus is, uh, excuse me, the supply, not the surplus. Um, I think the supply is still going to outweigh the demand uh, yeah. pretty considerably there. I don't think we're going to get any massive contracts for, gosh, I can't even think of an example, Edmundo Sosa. I don't <laughs> think he's signing any big free agent deal because of his yeah. superb middle infield defense. But I think that could be a position that teams maybe prioritize a little bit more, having a guy like that on their bench. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, 
with the Andres Jimenez example, you see a few, I, I, I want to say there's a few more teams who kind of have a spillover kind of thing, where like we got two shortstops, so we have to plug one of them in a second. So, but that also increases the supply, so it doesn't change your point at all. Yeah, Red Sox, another one. It's a bit of a different situation, but Trevor yeah. Story at second base this yeah. year. Yeah, right. Okay, so I think that's that's probably most of of what's really not actionable, but but really can be discussed, can be taken away from these rule changes right now. I am interested by the combination of the bigger bases and uh, the like pickoff restrictions. I wonder if we could see speed make a bit of a come. I mean, that's clearly the intent between those two rules um, is to, to bring some speed back into the game, which I don't think anybody would mind. I think we're a little bit low on stolen bases relative to the last decades of baseball history. Um, but I, I don't think there's necessarily anything actionable there from a trade value standpoint, other than a, a wait and see and, and see if speed becomes a more valued tool again. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think go ahead. I have a hunch it might play out that way. I and mean, because speed is such an exciting thing and I I you know, a lot of teams value the sort of, you know, toolsy combination of power and speed, right? They they're always looking for that in prospects and draft picks. And and because the you know, the more speed you have, generally speaking, the quicker you are at everything, right? So it makes you a quicker defender. It just makes you more athletic. And so that's what they're looking for is more athleticism. So that can play out in a number of different ways. Um, and so it, it's a manifestation of that. It's probably not, you know, gonna, you know, the, the art of stealing. I hope it comes back because I love to watch it. Um, but I'm just saying it may favor guys who are a little bit more sort of twitchy and athletic um, and maybe we see a little tick up for them because they can do everything well, including steel bases. Uh, but I'm not sure yet. We're going to have to see how it plays out. Yeah. I'm very cautiously optimistic. I've been ever since they first kind of floated larger bases. I think it was probably five or six years ago at this point. I, I got a little excited about it. Cause yeah, there's just not there at least the last handful of years you know, every year there'd be one or two standout guys that lead the league by 15 or 20 steals. You know, Whit Merrifield a couple years or Billy Hamilton, D. Gordon, uh, Rajai Davis, guys like that, where even if even if you could tell that people weren't stealing bases as much as they used to, because it's not as analytically valuable. It's not, you know, if, if you're not going to the, the, we have a better understanding of how successful you need to be to make stealing bases worth it. And so there are teams and players are picking and choosing more efficiently of when they should steal, which is great from a wins and losses perspective and, and performing to the best of your ability as a team. But it's a little bit less exciting for the sport, I think. So if this can even just kind of nudge the needle back in the other direction and get a little bit more action into it, uh, again, as you point out, for even just some of those more athletic players, like you, Aaron Judge has like 15 steals or something this year. It's it's cool. Like he's not necessarily the guy that this rule is aimed at specifically, but guys like that who are just athletes and and smart base runners, those are fun to watch just as much as the Billy Hamiltons and Terrence Gores who can just run crazy around the bases. And so if we can kind of raise that baseline a little bit where the athletic guys can steal five or ten more a year. That's I think that's just a more visually appealing sport. Again. Don't know what that does, if anything, for trade value specifically, especially since it's kind of 
you know, a raising, what's, what's the phrase, a raising tide, a high tide rises, raises all boats, something like that. There, there's a saying there. Um, <laughs> but I guess if anything, you could squint at it and see that the big lumbering types would be a little bit even further, uh, less valued than, than they currently are. You know, the lumbering DH, Dan Vogelbach, Rowdy Telez, those kind of guys. But I, I don't think it's anything meaningful enough to make any sort of preemptive changes. If we see something in the market that's clearly suggesting that, then yeah. But I don't think there's anything we need to do right now. Yep, totally agree. I think, you know, even if we were to speculate, it would be a very small sample size. So I think we need to wait and see how the data points play out in a larger market sense. So we'll see how the offseason plays out in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Uh, that's the rule changes. Uh, we have a couple, I think, interesting teams to discuss, and I think we've touched on each of them at some point in previous episodes, but we've got a little bit more news from each of them. Uh, let's start with the Tigers, who obviously have had a very disappointing year uh, in 2022. They were expecting to be starting to turn the corner. They made some big free agent acquisitions, and, and their big prospects were ready for the big leagues, and none of it has gone well at all. They, I think, I think it was either the episode, our last episode or the episode before. Uh, where we started talking about them and we went down the list and they have like one or two above average hitters on on the roster at all. It's rough. Um, but they also uh, just let go Alavila, which we did discuss on a previous episode. And there have been some reports of some of the names that have been floated to replace him as their GM or president of baseball ops, however, whatever you want to call the position there, who's going to run the front office essentially from from the baseball perspective. And so this is from Lynn, Lynn Henning of the Detroit News, who listed current Tigers assistant GM Sam Menzen, Dodgers senior VP of baseball ops Josh Burns, and Cardinals special assistant to the GM, GM Slater, as three names that seem somewhat attached uh, to those discussions. And so uh, those the, Josh Burns, we've heard his name a ton. He's been with the Dodgers for a while now. He's been very successful there. Obviously, the, the entire organization there has been very successful. I don't know as much specifically about Sam Menzin or Matt Slater, although the Cardinals, they run a tight ship there as well, and maybe Slater's a big part of that. And Menzin, yeah, I, I don't know how I would feel if I were a Tigers fan and it was an internal replacement to to fix the mess that's there right now. Um, there were a handful of other names that were kind of floated more speculatively. Uh, it's Twins assistant GM Daniel Adler, Braves VP of scouting Dana Brown, Cardinals assistant GM Randy Flores, Guardians assistant GM James Harris, Orioles VP and assistant GM Sig Mejdal, Astros assistant GM Pete Putilla, and Rays VP of baseball ops Carlos Rodriguez, uh, as well as former Tigers director of baseball ops Mike Smith. So a whole bunch of names there. <laughs> None of them are necessarily the most recognizable. I'd say that the biggest names are Burns and Sig Mejdal, which mm-hmm. I'd be pretty shocked if he left the Orioles now mm-hmm. as their... Yeah really on the upswing here um i'd say the biggest piece of news to this the biggest surprise to me here and this is something we discussed and i speculated on a little bit the last time we talked about this was i thought that uh that john daniels made a lot of sense here and his name is nowhere even like you know there's a they're casting a wide net here in this report there's what was that at least 10 names listed and his isn't isn't on it at all as even speculation so that's a bit surprising to me it it maybe suggests that they're that he's taking a break or 
that there was something more to his dismissal as you and I, you know, softly speculated that it might've been something internal that we just don't know about. Um, yeah, that, that, that was my biggest takeaway from seeing this list because otherwise, yeah, it's just a list of kind of some of these names you see here and there as, Oh, this guy's going to be the next big deal as a, as a front office. Uh, he's getting all the interviews, that kind of thing. Burns has been yeah. getting interviews for top positions for the last five years, at least it seems like. Yeah. So first of all, that's a lot of names, <laughs> you know, most of which aren't very well known to even the most ardent of baseball fans. Um, yeah. And Burns has been in the, to your point, has been in the news quite a while, but he never seems to take the job, which makes me wonder, like he probably likes it in LA. Yeah. He seems to, you know, obviously he's thriving there as, you know, Andrew Friedman's right-hand man. And, and some guys just like, okay, I'm good. And, uh, you know, unless it's like an absolutely incredible offer, I'm not sure. I have my doubts, in other words, if, if he would. So, and, you know, the the Tigers have also have been one of these clubs, you know, it's very fashionable to have like a two-person, you know, like the president of baseball observations or vice president of baseball operations and a GM underneath that person, where the Tigers always just had the one, you know, in the, in the GM role. And so, um, it may be a lateral move for a guy who's a number two to go to, oh, it's just a GM role. It's not like a fancy president of baseball operations role. I can hire a GM under me, like unless they change that. As far as I know, it's just the one that could be a minor factor. I'm just guessing here. Um, so it may be less attractive. But I think the most relevant thing is that, the you know, that we talked about this before. The Tigers are a mess. You know, the rebuild didn't go well. And now they are essentially looking at a rebuild of a rebuild, which is, and they've got really nothing to trade unless they trade some of their young players, which they probably don't want to do. Um, but they have to kind of, whoever comes in has to figure out that mess and say, okay, what's our new timeline? Are we going to be good try to be good now and spend a bunch more money on free agents, which may be just sort of, you know, papering over some bigger problems? Or are we going to say, okay, Let's shift everything to three, four, five years from now, and which means, you know, trading a guy like Mize or Manning or, you know, some of their younger guys. So, but they don't really have much to trade. It doesn't, because those guys have kind of seen their stocks fall. So, um, so they're kind of stuck. And so my point is, it's not the most attractive job from that point of view, unless they're given a long leash saying, okay, we, we'll give you five years to turn this thing around. But they've also got to modernize their um, their whole like player development system and analytics system because they were word I hear in articles I read and such kind of imply that they were you know one of the less forward thinking clubs and so I think part of it is modernizing all of that infrastructure as well. So it's a tall order uh, every from every perspective. Yeah, and I guess maybe that line of thinking kind of answers my question of why John Daniels really wasn't an option here. It's that, you know, if I take a step back and, and you look at what kind of executive this, this gig would be good for, uh, just, just thinking about it, someone like Dave Dombrowski would have no interest in this whatsoever. Just saying like purely hypothetically, not, not saying that he's, he's even under consideration here. He's obviously locked up with the Phillies, but someone like him, a, seasoned front office exec who doesn't have anything to prove necessarily as far as like the rebuilding process goes you know they're not trying to make a name for themselves they're the guy you they're the finisher the guy you bring in to to push you over the edge and i know dombrowski's kind of a unicorn but i guess you can look at john daniels in a similar way where he's got such a reputation such a history of success that 
this isn't necessarily the job for him. You know, this this isn't I'm going to come in here and get the ring that I've been pushing for 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 my whole career. This is all right. I got a mess to clean up, and if I successfully do so, it'll put my name on the map. And so maybe that's why you're seeing a lot of these lesser known names, where it's it's a good opportunity for somebody who has been in in the shadows, and you know maybe he's not going to he or she I should say isn't going to move too much higher in their current organization. You know, one of them here, Braves VP of Scouting, Dana Brown. Dana Brown's not pushing Alex Anthopoulos out of the top seat in Atlanta. Cardinals assistant GM Randy Flores. Uh, uh, I am blanking on the Cardinals' top guy right now. Um, uh, John Mazalia. Yes, yes, thank you. A, a complete a fixture there in St. Louis. Uh, Randy Flores is not going to be pushing him out of his seat. So guys like that where, you know, even if it is by title a lateral move, they're kind of, they're getting the reins here. They're getting the chance to prove themselves on their own. And and that's the kind of guy that this job might be more attractive to. Not saying that it necessarily is an attractive job for all of the reasons that you just listed for how difficult it's going to be to write the ship in any way other than, all right, we're going to lose for another four or five years to, to get more draft picks and try again. Uh, that That's that's not the ideal outcome. That's not what anybody wants right now within that organization. And it's going to be hard to find a solution that isn't that. So it's not an attractive job, but I think that's why this name is, this list is lesser names because it's, it's more of these guys that need the opportunity to prove themselves. And this is, this is that opportunity kind of. Yeah, I can see that, you know, if there's no, you know, upward movement availability for them, then yeah, uh, that makes a ton of sense. You know, and if they've been a number two, and to your point, if this is a number one kind of job, even if it's not that by title, um, yeah. Um, but but that also means they've got to have all of those ducks in a row, right? The the chops to revamp the analytics department, the chops to totally revamp the player development, you know, side, the chops to figure out the strategy most of all for what are they doing <laughs> you know what is their timeline you know the chops to manage up with an owner who i've heard is pretty good but who knows um you know that there's a lot to that it has to be a, you know you have to have a lot of sort of senior level leadership kind of skills um so you know that's that's easier said than done yeah absolutely all right, another organization that's in a weird spot, having a disappointing year, but has more certainty in the front office, uh, the San Francisco Giants. So we, I, I'm not actually sure we've talked about them too much um, in the last few episodes, uh, but they're going to be one of the main teams to watch this offseason, and it's because they have been in the past such a financial powerhouse, and in the last few years, Farhan Zaidi's been such a creative um creative head of baseball ops. I don't know his exact position, um, but he's really organized the team very well. He's been doing the, the, you know, he got it from the A's and, and refined it with the Dodgers, but this bargain bin approach, put together a team, however you can find value wherever it is. And theoretically, <laughs> they haven't necessarily shown it in the last few years, but theoretically the giants have, pretty close to the same financial firepower to to mix with that approach like the Dodgers have done so well. They're not going to quite approach Dodger payrolls, but they're closer to the Dodgers than they are to the A's <laughs> as far as budget goes. And so this is a team that should be very successful. But 
after I think it was 107, 108 wins in 2021, they've completely fallen flat. Uh, they're pretty much out of the playoff picture at this point for 2022. And really in, in a weird spot. They don't necessarily have any of those young superstars that are just getting ready at the big league level and, and they're going to build a core around them. Uh, they have watched a lot of their older players either decline or retire or both. You know, Posey's gone. Brandon Belt can't stay healthy. Brandon Crawford's having a down year compared to last year, a career year last year, uh, so on and so forth, up and down the roster. Guys like Joey Bart haven't clicked for them. And so it's it's this weird combination of a bunch of very good role players and some pretty solid veterans, Alex Wood, Alex Cobb, etc., and just not really much else going on. And there's there's a couple names on the farm to look at, but nobody that's really just banging the door down gonna gonna knock their socks off uh, for the next couple years. So they're in they're in a weird spot. And Farhan Zaidi spoke to uh, uh, MLB Network Radio and gave gave an interview there and and kind of said nothing. <laughs> it, it's one of those where oh, we're gonna be aggressive this off season and we can do anything everything's on the table and uh, the really the main point that he made was that they want to get healthier more athletic younger which is yeah that's the direction that they really need to head in uh since that interview they made one move which didn't necessarily line up with that desire which was extending wilmer flores uh he's he's been a versatile infielder for them a pretty decent bench bat utility type uh, above average hitter uh they extended him to a two-year deal uh which is technically uh, it's technically a three-year deal excuse me uh guaranteed 16.5 million uh the third year has uh, a complicated option like they've been doing lately you know the, the player option or the club option and with the the buyout and all of that that comes out to a 16 and a half million guarantee um and and based on the values we have that is pretty fair um we have him at 1.8 in surplus right now so right right about what we expected for him given given the type of player he is so that's been their first move kind of going into this off season is to keep him around um but it really yeah they got a lot of options here they could be competitive in the free agent market they're talking about getting younger and and more athletic so you wonder Trey Turner is he attractive there Aaron Judge has been kind of tied to them speculatively a lot since he's a, a California guy Bay Area guy um they have some trade chips on the farm if they chose to do that, but I, I don't think that's necessarily Zaidi's MO is, is moving any of those top, top prospects that they could. I don't know. It, it seems like a lot of question marks here, and, and this could very well just be a let's wait until the offseason and see how things are shaping up then kind of thing. But do you have any any thoughts on their direction? Any Anything that you think might be a good fit for them, what they need to do? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think they're going to be the more one of the more interesting teams to watch this offseason. Because um, when you look back, um, plan A was, okay, let's ride the old core as long as we can while we develop the next wave, the next core in the farm. In, in a perfect world, the old core would sit and fade out into the sunset and the new core would be up and running and, and delivering. 
Um, and last year, you could kind of squint and see that because the old core was having a good year and the new core still had some interesting stuff happening. And now this year, it kind of fell apart on both sides. You know, the, the old core got old and injured and ineffective. They lost Posey, who was kind of the old core leader. And the new core yeah, had some bumps in the road. Uh, outside of Marco Luciano and Kyle Harrison, their two top prospects, a couple of their prospects actually kind of had struggles this year and, and saw their stocks drop. So, you know, there's some sort of mid mid, mid and lower tier stuff, you know, uh, guys bubbling up a little bit. But the, the farm is not as strong as they thought it might be. So you can't really say, OK, the, 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 you know, there's a new wave of prospects coming because there really isn't, except for you can kind of see maybe those two I mentioned as, as future major leaguers, but they're still not quite there yet. So. So they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. The old core is done. I, I just I put a fork in it. It's done. You know, Longoria is done. Crawford, they have another year of him, but I think he's done. Um, you know, so there's not – Belt is done. He's going to be a free agent anyway. Um, you know, and then they've got these older pitchers like Alex Wood and Alex Cobb, who they've signed, and they're looking kind of close to done as well. So, you know, it feels like – you know, they can paper over again with more of those types of signing next year, but there's really nothing, you know, no core there to kind of sit on. And so I think they're going to have to regroup uh, and sort of rechart their course a little bit and invest in the farm. Um, they could trade it you know, if they decide that they're OK, let's let's take a break for a year or two. And that means that a guy like Mike uh, Yastrzemski might be available in trade because he's only got, I think, three years left on his out of control. Um, so they might say okay let's look at a couple of trade pieces uh because we're probably not going to need them uh, when our next window comes around or they're not going to be here i'm just totally speculating but this would make some sense on the other hand zadie likes to kind of play it both ways he likes to put a competitive product on the field while you know to your point not trading any prospects so it's going to be a difficult dance to do and i think it's going to be one of the more challenging you know, um, things Zaidi has done in his career. You know, he's been kind of viewed as kind of a wonderkind, kind of wizard of, of sorts. And now he's like, okay, well, <laughs> now he's got to roll up his sleeves and really see what he's, what he's got, what he can do. Yeah, it's going to be tough, tough, but it's also going to be fun to watch. Yeah, on the surface, I, I think you could compare the Giants to the Tigers right now of being in this kind of in-between do we compete? Do we not? Do we rebuild? What's going on here? We don't have an, a clear direction right now. But there are some pretty key differences. One, Zaidi runs the Giants, and I think there's a lot of Giants fans that aren't too happy and, and don't agree with the you know Wonderkind label or anything like that. But it's pretty clear that he's doing a better job of this than Avila was, and I'd take him over pretty much anyone the Tigers hire to, to take over operations there. He's he's smart. He he knows what he's doing. That's a big point in the Giants' favor. They also don't really have any kind of financial commitments, at least for a team of their size. What they what they could have going. It's really Crawford, and then you know, they got Desclafani and and Wood and Lastella and Cobb on on their last couple years of of very mid range uh, like veteran free agent deals. And so none of that's weighing them down too much, keeping them from going out and making a, an impact on the market. Whereas the Tigers, they just signed Javi Baez and Eduardo Rodriguez and Miguel Cabrera is still there. And 
they, they just have some money hold up there that they can't go solve all their problems with contracts. Not not suggesting that the Giants would, but theoretically they, they could solve some of their problems with money. Um, but then the other factor that could kind of push things in the other direction is the Tigers have this uh, kind of an urgency to try now because, well, A, they just signed Javier Baez, but B, Torkelson and Green and Manning and Mize and Scooble are all at the big league level. And, you know, Torkelson has had some struggles and Green has been kind of just okay. And Mize and Manning haven't really stayed healthy. And when they are, they're, their, their performance has been kind of eh, but it, but those are supposed to be the core and all of their clocks have started at the big league level. Whereas the Giants haven't really had anyone like that. They, you, you mentioned Marco Luciano. He's still a few years off, it seems like. He's in high A right now. Kyle Harrison's getting a little bit closer, but he still hasn't debuted. They still got some time there. It's really just Joey Bart, and it depends what you think of Joey Bart if you think yeah. he's actually a piece of the future anymore. So they maybe don't have as much pressure to push chips in and win now, except for maybe Logan Webb, you could argue, but that even that's, you know, that's just one guy. It's not your entire core at the big leagues ready to go. It's just the one guy. It's, it's a bit rough looking at their values right now. It goes Webb at 69.7. As far as big leaguers go, uh, their surplus values. Webb at 69.7. Then you're dropping all the way down to Camilo Doval, a reliever, at 23.8. Then Austin Slater, who's kind of more of a, a short side platoon outfielder at 15.9. Tyro Estrada, who's like kind of a utility-ish infielder who's just playing really well right now at 13.1. Yastrzemski, who they picked up for basically for free and he's kind of just a corner outfielder maybe slightly above average at 12.9 and then bart at 11.4 and so they just don't have anything resembling a core right now they got webb at the front of the rotation and a bunch of back-end veteran types lined up behind him okay that that can work at at oracle park in san francisco and just no real offensive core so you're kind of looking at kind of what you suggested you're either you're either reshuffling some pieces now gonna wait for the kids to come up wait for uh, Luis Matos and Marco Luciano and Hunter Bishop if he can get it going offensively stuff like guys like that you're waiting for them to make their way through the system and and trading off some of these veterans and, and maybe considering a Logan Webb trade in the next year or two or you can go out and make that big splash and I think their offense probably needs more than one big splash but I don't know if they if they chose to open the bank for a Trey Turner, they could also grab a I don't know try give Michael Conforto a shot or uh, I haven't looked too closely into the upcoming free agent class, so <laughs> apologies. Yeah. But the, uh, but you know fill fill some of these kind of roles around the diamonds uh, like we've seen other teams do. So go ahead, John. I'm I'm kind of rambling at this point. No, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> the other interesting thing I I saw that Zaidi mentioned is he'd be willing to take on a bad contract if you know interesting young players or and or prospects were attached. So you know it gets the wheels spinning a little bit. Like hmm, what what bad prospects? I mean, what bad contract can he take? I'm thinking about the Yankees, and they would love to get rid of Aaron Hicks. And you know they're kind of stuck with that. They're stuck with a couple of them actually. Um, I know Yankee fans on Twitter are just saying, please get rid of these guys. Like they don't like Donaldson either. So like you could see that kind of thing happening on a, albeit modest level where let's say the, the giants pick up Donaldson and a prospect or two from the Yankees or 
you know, because at least Donaldson is somewhat playable, whereas Hicks looks like he may be closer and closer to being done. So, but but something like that, you could say, okay, let's build up the farm, or at least, you know, get a major league ready guy or two to kind of help spur things along. But you can see him getting creative like that, using his financial weight to do so. He's done that before in the Will Wilson trade, for example. So uh, I can see him doing it again. John, I have it. So so I, I pulled up our highest lowest tab on the website because I was kind of I was thinking along those lines and I was thinking like it feels like we don't have as many underwater contracts right now as, as we have sometimes in the past where you can just point at an Eric Hosmer and say, oh, that's the guy we're going to we're going to try and salary dump him and steal Padres prospects or whatever. At first glance, at first thought, it didn't feel like we had as many of those guys right now. And looking at the at the lowest values uh, in the system, that's kind of right. We don't really have as many of those guys. It's it's the untouchable tier of Steven Strasburg and Anthony Rendon where nobody's coming anywhere near that. And then guys where their teams either still have some faith in them or they're still performing, so even if they're overpaid they're you know they're probably not itching to trade them or they were just signed and so that's like christian yelich Giancarlo stanton chris bryant garrett cole nick castellanos jose barrios Corey seager robbie ray those those guys aren't going anywhere anytime soon i don't think no but i did i did catch another name on this list madison bumgarner john <laughs> madison bumgarner <laughs> I'm the d-backs my water out. the d-backs yeah, wouldn't the D-backs <laughs> wouldn't mind getting out from that contract, and they got uh-huh. a lot of young outfielders right now. Some might uh-huh. some might argue too many young outfielders right now. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm thinking about that now. That that wasn't a thought that had, that had crossed my mind until I just saw his name pop up on the list. But and you know he yeah. sold some tickets in San Francisco, obviously. So right? you know, okay, there's that. And even if he is, you know, even if they don't fix him, I, I wouldn't expect them to fix him or save him or whatever. Uh, he'll he'll play a bit better in San Francisco than he does in Arizona. And yeah, a little bit more of a pitcher's park there. Yeah, and there's not as much. There, there's no real pressure on a trade like that to work out. There's no oh he was our our big get and, and we need him to stabilize the rotation. Like the rotation's plenty stable. He's really just keeping a spot warm for yeah. Harrison or, or some other yeah. young arm to to push their way through. So I don't I don't mind that kind of framework. I would have to look closer to it on the D back side, but yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah, and as you'll see, D backs are one of the strongest farms you know, in baseball, so they might be able to afford that a little bit. But mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I, like, do they, like if it comes down to what do they prioritize? You know, getting rid of the money or keeping the prospects? Like, if if it's really higher priority to get rid of the money so that they can spend that money more productively, then yeah, and they and they can afford to give away some prospects to attach to him. Yeah, I can see it. I think it's a good idea. Um, you know, uh, but a lot of clubs will like, eh, we're good. Uh, we'll eat the money because we don't want to give up our prospects. So that's the tricky part of it. Yeah, exactly. I'm very slowly here pulling this up right now. Obviously, Corbin Carroll, Dalton Varsho, Alec Thomas completely off the table. But Jake McCarthy's been on fire for them the last few weeks. His, his value isn't quite up to how far underwater Bumgarner's is. <laughs> He's at 13.9. Bumgarner's at... Negative 
but you know you can factor him in in a prospect or him and the d-back still eat some of the money or something like that i i could see that being interesting to both yeah, sides or, could... or maybe they think mccarthy's a part of the future and, and they want to hang on to him yeah i mean you know no one expected this from mccarthy really he just thought he was a fourth outfielder at best but he's really kind of turn some heads now like really is he like a regular now like who'd have thunk it so and you know there's a side of for anxiety he was like ooh, uh like shiny you know like he likes to go dumpster diving a little bit let's say he picked up yastrzemski so like okay i can see that turn that guy into something um you know but if he's gonna take on a bad contract he's probably gonna want some pedigree somebody a little bit more like with some prospect value upside i don't know i'm just guessing knowing his mo uh, but yeah it's a good idea anyway uh, but i do see a lot of yankees twitter saying please please find a way to get rid of donaldson and hicks so um i think you'll see some activity exploration at least of of that because the yankees got a clear some roster spots i think eventually yeah that's definitely a good call too i could see donaldson making sense for them as well in in not quite the same way but a similar way to when they picked up Longoria originally of, you know, he's clearly on the decline, but we think he still has some value for us. And, and maybe Donaldson does still have something in the tank, but yeah, I'm surprised, uh, surprised Yankees Twitter hasn't exploded yet. I mean, I know it's, it's all relative. You could, you could argue that they already have exploded, but man, what a rough few weeks for them. And <laughs> but with the team's performance and they're still playing Donaldson at third and kind of Falefa at shortstop. And they're all upset about that. They have Peraza on the roster and they're not even using him. And, and Kiner Falefa's not grading well at shortstop, but he does at third base, but they're not putting him there. And it's a, whew, oh my what God, a, that... what a fun second half for Oh Yankees. yeah. Those of you who don't follow Yankees fans on Twitter did not see the, the horror show that was Aaron Hicks like a week or so ago when he, oh, when man. he fumbled those two balls in the outfield. I'm like, oh my God, they're just, you know, please get rid of him now. So like, you know, I, I don't know if anybody if any other team would want Aaron Hicks at this point, because it just, it's, it's bad. Um, but I can see them getting rid of Donaldson and they may just have to eat Aaron Hicks' contract. I suspect that's what they'll do. Yeah. That, that seemed pretty likely for a while now, but yeah, that's the uh, San Francisco giants. Uh, we have, uh, we, we mentioned the Wilmer Flores extension, one other extension to touch on briefly. Uh, the Red Sox extended Enrique Hernandez for a one year, $10 million deal, just a straight $10 million deal. Uh, no options, doesn't look like any incentives or anything. Uh, he hasn't been very good for them this season. He's been hurt a little bit and, and underperforming when he's been on the field, but he was very good for them previously, and he's a good outfield defense uh, d- defender, a uh, good versatile player. I think that's a pretty fair, inoffensive price. Uh, we have him at negative 0.3 in surplus right now, so pretty close, you know, well within margin of error. We have his uh, field value at 9.7, the salary's at 10, so... Uh, yeah, right no one's going to say, oh, I'm going to yeah. give you a 9.7 unit cost. Let's just yeah. round it up to 10, so it's fair. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if they're, you could also figure in, if they're choosing to extend him, that means they're maybe a little bit more optimistic on him bouncing back than maybe just purely numbers alone that kind of kind of play the middle or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, it seems like a, they, they are going to have an interesting offseason as well, especially depending on what Xander Bogarts does it seems pretty likely he opts out and so are they going to fork over the cash if not are they moving Trevor Story to shortstop are they going after Trey Turner or Carlos Correa or anyone else a whole lot of questions in Boston and I think uh, this is them 
locking in one thing before those questions really start rolling in locking in one versatile player who they know they want somewhere on their team wherever that's going to be yeah obviously the big speculation in the offseason is you know what's going on with devers and are they going to extend him or not because if not you know then he may become a trade candidate maybe another you know mookie situation or soto situation uh there so that's probably their biggest priority is to resolve that one one way or the other right Okay, so moving on from that, um, that's all of the transactions we have, or excuse me, not necessarily transactions, but uh, all, all of the the actual money moves, I guess, <laughs> that we have to discuss for this week. Uh, but we do have some injury-related news that I want to do at least touch on. Uh, the first one is the, is the Brewers. They placed Freddy Peralta on the injured list with shoulder issues. Um, he's been fighting this shoulder issue for a while now. It's been throughout the season. He's had his innings limited. He's had his velo drop, and it's it's a little bit concerning. Shoulders are always a little bit scary, and Peralta hasn't historically had the cleanest bill of health throughout his career. Uh, we still have him at sixty-eight point seven million in surplus. He's still a very valuable player. He's a good pitcher. He's got four years of very cheap team control. He's only he's he's on locked in on a low value contract, so he's only making twenty-five million over those four years. Um, but it's just one to keep an eye on where if this lingers, if this sticks around, you could see his value come down pretty quickly uh, from that 68.7. If, if it looks like the shoulder is going to be a lingering issue, maybe cost him a year or something like that. Uh, just just one to one to be a little bit worried about. Keep an eye on. Yeah. And so injury risk is always a bit harder to quantify, as we know. And if we see, you know, a little bit here and there, you know, we, we don't discount it too much, but if it starts to become a, a bigger issue than we do. And how do we know it's a bigger issue? You know, we follow the news. We look at how much playing time the guy's missed or is projected to miss. And we look at what experts are saying. Um, I highly recommend Will Carroll's uh, newsletter on Substack called uh, Under the Knife. He's an expert on kind of sports injuries and how much they affect and how to kind of separate one from another, whether it's minor or major or not. Um, so all of those are sort of in inputs to to our model. Um, but right now we're in kind of a wait and see uh, mode with this one. Uh, but you could be very well right uh, if the news comes out that it's more serious. Then he is. We'll definitely have to address that one. Yep. And somewhat along those lines, but interesting for another reason. Uh, both Tyler Maley and Frankie Montas have been continuing to deal with shoulder issues. Uh, they were both. They were two of the top starting pitchers traded at the deadline. And moving up to the deadline, we we talked a lot about how their kind of mid-season shoulder injuries were affecting their value and and how much they were affecting their value. We couldn't exactly say for sure because we don't have access to the medicals specifically. We don't know if these are more likely to be lingering things or if it is just, hey, it, it flared up a little bit. I need a couple days off and, and then I'll be good to go. Uh, but they... They both were traded for lower returns than we necessarily expected, so for, for below-value returns, uh, still within the range of the model, but not quite up to uh, up to the surplus value we had. And it's potential that the risk for something like these issues is part of that. So Frankie Montas just today, I think, is going uh, undergoing an MRI, uh, today being Saturday, uh, he's been very, very bad for, for the Yankees. He has a 635 ERA over eight starts with them. Wow, it's been a rough 
a rough second half for all of uh, all of the Yankees' deadline acquisitions. Uh, Montas has been bad and now injured. Benintendi got injured. He broke his hamate. Uh, Harrison Bader hasn't made it back yet. Jordan Montgomery has been fantastic for the Cardinals. And, and you know what? Lou Trevino has been very, very good for the Yankees. So there, there's one, I guess. <laughs> um, so that, that's Montas. And then I'm pulling up uh, Tyler Maley's game logs right now. It looks like he, yeah, he has not pitched since September 3rd with this shoulder issue continuing to flare up. And, and he is also, uh, for the most part, he, he had one good start with the twins but uh his other three were he had one start of two and a third innings that was cut short due to the injury another start of two innings that was cut short and his first start he went six innings and allowed four runs so he has not been the player the twins expected either uh or yeah the twins expected uh, so we have his value down to 13 million it was at 22.9 at the time of the trade and, and part of that is you know we've we've lopped off the rest of this season um these are and we'll discuss that more briefly but these are the uh essentially the off-season values what we expect them to be worth in the off-season given their current performance and so it's not counting this october or this remainder of september so that's important to note as well but it is still a pretty notable fall from 22.9 to 13. Uh, Montas is at 15.9, but because the news just came in today about his shoulder, I don't believe he's been updated uh, for that yet. And since Correct. we don't know anything yet, we don't know anything definitive yet about it. If it's going to put him back on the injured list, what it's looking like, if it is just a flare up or something, uh, really don't have any actionable information there yet. But it's just a case of these two guys, uh, kind of similar to what I was saying with Peralta, they could fall fast if either of these issues become more serious. And I don't, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily expect it to come to the point where Tyler Maley is a non-tender candidate or anything like that, unless it is, oh no, he needs thoracic outlet syndrome and he's going to be out all of 2023. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it, it's pretty clear that teams were treating both of these guys as very risky players to acquire. And this is exactly why. You know, it's, it... I don't want to speculate, but, you know, both Montas and Mayley made a lot of starts, you know, in the first half of the year or so up until the trade deadline. And they were, generally speaking, pretty good. Um, and they both had issues emerge in July. Now, I don't know if that's because, you know, they were just sort of playing through it or if it only just emerged in July. Who knows? Uh, but it's, you know, it makes you wonder, like, why are they bad now? Why are they injury prone now? Hey, they were pretty good in the first half. So, you know, was was that first half, you know, was it over usage or like, I don't know. Um, but they're clearly both two different pitchers now. And it's unfortunate that the Yankees and Twins kind of got stuck holding the bag there. But I'm sure the, um, you know, Reds and the A's are okay. <laughs> they're like, okay, we're good. Um, way trades work out sometimes. Yeah. And I mean... Even on the whole, there's been plenty of studies that show that the vast majority of prospects traded at the deadline never amount to anything. So it's very possible that these are scenarios in which either these guys rebound down the stretch or they rebound next year and, and they're exactly what these teams expected from them, whereas the, the prospects that the A's and the Reds got never amount to much or they get a couple relievers and a bench bat out of it or whatever. So still 
far too early to to really close the book on anything from either of these trades but this is not what you wanted early on if, if you were yeah. twins with the yankees and and again yankees twitter fans are basically saying you know what we've learned our lesson we're not trading with the a's ever again no more trades with the a's for pitchers you know they didn't like Sonny gray he didn't do well obviously there and now they're disappointed with montas but to your point looking back at the Sonny gray trade um you know what did the a's get out of that they got dustin fowler who was a bust uh they got jorge mateo who had the they had the DFA, who is now sort of on an upswing with Baltimore, but that's beside the point. And they got James Caprellian, who they had high hopes. He was a Tommy John surgery sort of rehab guy. And his value is down in the low, like, I think under one now. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's a back in starter. So that's what they got for Sonny Gray. Not much. So uh, it happens. And it's it's so weird. Both of those guys, both Montas and Gray, were so good with the A's. And, I mean, it's probably too early to say anything definitive about Montas, but Gray was so bad with the Yankees, and he's been really good with the Reds and the Twins since then. Like, he's he's went back to being himself. He was a four-and-a-half win pitcher in 2019, 1.7 wins in the short in 2020, 2.4 in 2021, 2.5 so far this year. He's, he's Sonny Gray. He's back to normal. He just, I don't want to over speculate as far as though can't handle the the spotlight in new york or whatever if it was just kind of you know small sample size fluky whatever just had a bad year but i have no confidence that frankie montas is a great pitcher as well and it's just this weird thing that's happened twice now it's it's bizarre and and he's a, a good guy by all accounts and i wish him the best but wow weird all right but, you know, Brian Cashman and Billy Bean are really good friends, supposedly. So you're probably going to see. Don't take my comments about Yankees Twitter to heart. I'm sure they'll make other deals in the future. For sure. Yeah. Okay. So that's all for the news for this week. Um, real quick, we want to discuss. Uh, it's been a little bit now. We, we meant to actually record last weekend, but we had some things come up. I had to push it back to this one. Uh, so it's been a little bit since the last round of updates, but we did. Uh, push through a new round of updates um, around the 7th, 8th of September. So a little bit over a week ago at this point. Um, in this round of updates, we, as we've been doing for the last couple rounds, we updated with the current stats from this season um, and projecting them out as if they were to continue throughout the rest of this season at that rate and um, looking at what their off-season values would be. So that, that's the number. It's Once again, the number that's on the site right now is, you know, if the off season started tomorrow, that's what their value theoretically would be. Um, so there's there's been some changes from that. Um, one of them that John mentioned earlier in the episode was Bo Bichette. He's been so much better in the last few weeks than he was for the rest of the season prior. Um, another guy, Justin Turner, he's been very good. Mike Trout went positive. <laughs> he he's been on a tear and he got back yep. healthy and he's back in the in the plus. Um handful of other names are there any others that you want to touch on right well now, i just want to touch on, on trout for, trout's an interesting example because he has so many years of control that um any in effect minor change to his field value can get amplified across you know what is it eight years he has left uh six years i'm not sure uh off the top of my head but anyway multiple years so you know a 10 percent swing one way or the other will change his field value and since his salary is fixed that doesn't change so there's there's leverage there so it's going to move you know a bit more and in his case you know he was coming off of that 
you know, back injury, which, you know, sounded pretty serious. According to doctors, it's a chronic condition. And, you know, he was struggling. So his field value at the time took a hit. And then he came back, got it treated, and he's been on a tear. And so because of that leverage point, you know, we took an upswing and you multiply that, that has a sort of a downstream effect on, you know, okay, well, you know, what is the probability he's going to be okay down down the road in the future? You know, it, it swung him from positive, uh, negative to positive. So and that can happen with cases like that. So, yeah. But, uh, you know, otherwise, I mean, on the grand, on the whole, they shouldn't have changed that much because, you know, we're we had already kind of made the major change of saying, let's project to the off season, you know, and see what they're going to be like then as opposed to now. Um, so, but there were some that had those effects. Um, Juan Soto has been struggling. Um, and so his, his value has come down. Now, obviously the big change with him is we, you know, we're not counting what he did the rest of the season and then what he might be doing in the playoffs should they make it. So it's just two years of control for Soto. So his value has come down, I think, to about 80 or so. And if you wanted to just have fun and play that trade again, uh, as if it were to happen today, um, you know, Soto and the five prospects are sort of the Nationals, it would look now very lopsided in the Nationals' favor, which is interesting. So you just wait it out a little bit, and sometimes that can happen. Yeah, and I mean, we're still going to see it bounce back and forth. I don't think this is who Soto is. I I still have every belief in my mind that he's one of the best hitters in the game, and this is just kind of a fluke. And, and part of what makes him so in, attractive, so talented, so valuable is that even in this rough patch, he's still got like a four-something OBP, I think. Like, this, the, the, he's incapable of fully slumping because he has such a great eye at the plate and he's got so much power that people are still going to pitch around him. Uh, I'm pulling it up right now. Yeah, 376, almost 400. <laughs> He's had a 376 OBP with the Padres, which is, yeah, that'll play. He's still got a 114 WRC plus even in one of the worst stretches of his career. That's that's how it works. He's he's got a 230 BABIP with them. I don't think that's gonna last forever. Um, but yeah, that that's just with with somebody so valuable, any stretch of positive or negative performance is gonna swing their value pretty significantly. Yeah. Um, couple other names um, uh, that, that were solid performers during those weeks and saw their value come up a little bit. Zach Gallen had that really long scoreless inning streak. He's really good. Um, Spencer Strider is insane. <laughs> um, let's see. As, as far as the negatives go, DJ LeMahieu has been struggling. So is Ketel Marte. Um, th- those are really the two big names that come to mind on the offensive side. And taking a look at pitching, if I can pull it up. Um, nobody too significant. Uh, I, I just have a, a date range pulled up here and, and checking out the performance from those weeks. And, and no no notable names that were really totally underperforming. Sandy Alcantara's had a bit of a rough patch recently, but uh, even that isn't, isn't, hasn't been too bad, and I don't, didn't take his value down too much. Um, I guess that's part of the nature of it, that even the worst pitchers in that you know three-week span probably only had three or four starts. They really could only tank their value that much, whereas you know, Cattell Marte's 60, 70 plate appearances of hitting 135 probably didn't do him much good from a value standpoint, especially being on a fixed contract like you were kind of suggesting with Trout. So, uh, yeah, as you said, no massive changes in either direction because it is just a few weeks of, of data being updated. 
uh, but there were some movement. Uh, there was some movement, excuse me. Yeah, and one other point I just want to bring up, um, and I'm going to write a future article about this, is kind of these post-prospect busts or near busts um, that have seen their values totally collapse. I'm talking about Joe Adele, Christian Pache, uh, Jared Kelenic, you know, guys who were really top prospects and have really struggled at the major league level. And because we kind of like fast forwarded a little bit to the end of the season, what happened was their sort of numbers fast forwarded as well, which in the negative case really brought them down. And so that's why you see Joe, Joe Adele. So, you know, I think he's at zero now. Um, so um, there's going to be a few of those. And I think that's worth a deeper dive, which is why I'm going to write an article about that. We generally give uh, a two-year window for prospects once they come up to establish themselves, make those adjustments. And if they don't make those adjustments and they're struggling, you're going to see that value totally tank. And so that's happened with some of these pro prominent guys. It can be a little bit startling to see, like, oh, my God, Joe Adele, he's a bust. And a lot of times our model is right. And you'll see... You know, sometimes we're ahead of the game and then the news comes out later, oh, you know, um, you know, either they couldn't trade them or the, the you know, they're in some cases like Pache he might be a DFA next year because he's almost out of options. So you'll see that we get a sort of an early look at, oh, this this is this, this is potentially going to happen. So um, keep an eye on that. Yeah, I know we've gotten repeated questions or pushback or even just, you know, larger reporters or fans or whoever think that some thought that somebody like Adele could be the centerpiece of a big trade for the angels as recently as like this past deadline. But I think at this point you're looking at a couple years of repeated attempts at the major league level with no success whatsoever. And it's been so long since he was regarded as one of the best prospects in the game that, that you can't carry that forever. You know, nobody is, nobody is trading for, a 28-year-old reliever who can't stay in the big leagues just because he was a first-round pick 10 years before. You know, that at some point, the shine has to wear off when you have to be realistic. And we're definitely at that point with Adele. We're getting there with Joey Bart. We're there with Pache and, and Kelnick. We're also getting there at some point here. Yeah, it's a fact of of this of the game, really, <laughs> that at some point these guys they're they're even if they're not fully a bust you know i wouldn't be surprised if adele had a good season or two in him at some point either in you know a platoon role or he gets hot for half a season and he or he even finds a career as a as a two three war player something like that it wouldn't be the most surprising thing in the world but that's a big if to get us to even that point let alone the point at which they used to be valued at so yeah it, at some point you have to start treating these guys like they're a bust because Otherwise, you're just buying high on, or excuse yeah. me, buying buying low on a bunch of failed potential and wasting. You know, no team is going to waste their prospects or their big leaguers on guys like Adele right now. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of fans still kind of hope for you know upside, and they say, okay, well, these are guys are still young, and that's true. They do have a point. Um, but teams do have much shorter leashes these days. And you saw that Pache was traded in the Mount Olsen deal. It wasn't even the lead piece of that deal. Um, he was sort of a secondary piece at best. And and we've seen that happen uh, more often than you might realize. And so, um, so yeah, it's very real. Uh, teams will give up on prospects and will kind of try to, you know, unload them if they don't have that belief in them. And at a certain point, they've seen enough. 
So, um, and they got to move on. So that's, unfortunately, sometimes that's what happens with these guys. Yeah. So speaking of prospects, I think our last topic of the episode, uh, John has an article from the beginning of this month, beginning of September, uh, ranking the farm systems by trade value. And some of this stuff has shifted around a little bit since then, you know, players graduate or uh, updated reports on certain guys or, or whatever. So the numbers aren't exact and, and the placements might not necessarily be exact anymore either, but this is still a decent framework um, of what we're looking at as far as farm systems by trade value. And that's another important distinction here that this isn't necessarily a list of the strongest farms in the game and it's not going to exactly line up with every other publications farm system rankings uh, like the prospect publications themselves uh, because we're focused on trade value and so there's some slight differences that, that some slight adjustments that we might apply that someone like baseball america wouldn't uh, things for position or or for injury risk things like that, that that we have to factor in that they don't so there are some some slight changes some slight differences here um, but where do you want to start with this? With yeah, aspects? so let me just quickly like, touch on those points so they're clear. Um, so as far as we know, we're the only ones doing a cross-section. Like MLB Pipeline will do theirs, and Baseball America will do theirs, and Fangraphs will do theirs. But we're the ones that sort of are awaiting them, right? And so um, so we have kind of a neutral sort of view on that. And then secondly, um, because of that, you know, sometimes, we, you know, we, we're not privy to how they calculate the value side of things. So... You know, in our model, based on a lot of the established research, like a 60 rated prospect can be twice as much and twice as valuable as a 50, for example, whereas they might only have it like a third more valuable, for example, in theirs. So you'll see some differences. Um, and to your point, market demand plays a role. To be only types may may not have as much market value as, you know, just on paper, their skill set would suggest. Uh, roster status plays a role, World 5 draft status option status, things like that. And I mentioned Pache, you know, um, he was burning through options. Some of the Yankees guys uh, have been burning through options because they put him on the 40 a little too early. Um, so anyway, um, that all plays a role. And as I mentioned earlier, um, we tend to move prospects out of our sort of prospect bucket before some of these other outlets do. So once, generally speaking, once a prospect plays 10% of the season in the majors, they're off of our prospect list and into kind of the major league post prospect sort of bucket. And so we're only considering the ones who haven't done that yet that are pure prospects. Um, so the list is, is on our site. You can look up the article ranking farm systems by value. Um, at the time of this writing, number one, well, do you want to count down or do you want me to count up or, or how do you want to do it? Um, well, we can we can count the top five, bottom five, something like that, and then just point out any uh, yeah. anything else that's interesting to us. I don't, I don't think we need to go one through thirty. There, there's yeah, an yeah, article yeah. for that. Yeah. So so the top five in descending order. Number one is the the Orioles. Uh, this is prior to Gunnar Henderson's promotion because uh, he carries a lot of weight, but they have such a good farm with a lot of top end guys even after Henderson. Um, so they still haven't promoted Grayson Rodriguez, who's considered one of the top pitching prospects in the game. You know, they've got a few others that are recent draft pick, Colton Kowser and Colby Mayo and all these other guys. So that is a strong farm. They've done a really good job rebuilding there. And as you can see, the major league team is also getting excited and they've still got tons of prospects yet to come. So good for them. 
you mentioned the Diamondbacks, and they have a plethora of outfield prospects. They also have some good pitching prospects, and they are also loaded. So that is uh, <clears throat> that is a strong form to watch as well. Uh, we wrote this before Corbin Carroll was promoted, but even so, uh, there's still a lot there. Now, I want to sort of mention the Cleveland Guardians because even though they may not have like a superstar at the top of their list, Daniel Espino is their top prospect. He's one of the top pitching prospects in the game. But they are really sort of solid, like one through 10 of their farm. Like they're, they've got a lot of middle infield prospects. In fact, they've got a roster crunch, as we know. <clears throat> but it's it's like populated with kind of good quantity as opposed to like a top heavy like superstar at the top. They've got like five or 10 guys who could be potential major leaguers. Uh, and then the Reds, who have totally revamped their farm, um, given that they're rebuilding. A lot of that came from the Luis Castillo trade, where they, they just got a haul for him um, with Noel V. Marte and Edwin Arroyo and a couple other guys. And Nick Rawls doing a really good job of that. And then finally, the Dodgers are, are notable because not only, obviously, do they have a great MLB team, but they just keep cranking out prospect after prospect, and they can trade them. You know, they can trade a, you know... <clears throat> Um, a couple of guys like Keeper Ruiz and and uh, <clears throat> Josiah Gray to the Nationals for Scherzer and Turner. And the next year, they've got Diego Cartaya and Gavin Stone and all these guys are sort of bubbling up through the system. It's just an X-man-up kind of machine. So, you know, that is an enviable uh, system. So uh, that's the top five there. Any comments? Yeah, the Dodgers, insane. <laughs> I, I think that's all you really have to say there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I was very surprised that the Guardians didn't do more last offseason, given that they had just as much of a crunch then as they do now. Um, part of that could have been the weird, the lockout, and, and you know, I'm sure a lot of trade talks were interrupted by that. So I, I wonder uh, if they are more active this season, especially as uh, they're kind of cruising to a division title that nobody expected them to to grab <laughs> so they're they're never going to be a big financial powerhouse but i wonder if they start moving some of that capital and pushing more at the major league level uh, while they have some of these guys like ramirez and bieber in their prime yeah uh, so i think they should yeah out of out of that top five they're probably the most likely to to hmm do, do I feel confident enough to say this, that they're the most likely to kind of fall down the list at this time next year? I don't know. I don't know if I'm saying that with any kind of confidence, but <laughs> I, I think they're the most likely to trade from that surplus, I guess. I don't they, know. Yeah, they because they're almost forced to because of that roster yeah. crunch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One name that we didn't see on this list that you would have might have expected is the Rays, and that's because they've graduated guys and they kind of keep, uh, you know, keep that system flowing. But they're they're in seventh, so... No worries there. And I'll just mention the Rangers in passing uh, who are at number six. And unfortunately for John Daniels, so I think I think he's done a, a good he did a good job rebuilding that system. Um, rounding at the top 10 are the Rockies, Cubs and Cardinals. The Rockies are quietly moving up, guys. Maybe they know what they're doing there. Um, bottom five. 26 is the Astros, 27th is the Royals, 28th is the Mariners, 29th is the Padres, and 30th is the Braves. And there's some really interesting names there. Um, the Astros is not a surprise at 26 because, you know, they've been obviously contending and spending all their capital at the major league level. So, you know, um, they've kind of, and, you know, they got penalized for, of course, the cheating scandal. So they didn't get the draft picks that they wanted to. So they're languishing a bit at the bottom. 
The Royals, though, another sort of neither here nor there case that we haven't talked about much, struggling with the major league front. Now, having said that, it's you know they have graduated some guys recently. They graduated Melendez and Prado, and you know they've been moving aggressively. And because of our aggressive system, that's why they're a little bit low here. Uh, the Mariners, you know, were a top five farm not too long ago, but they made a bunch of trades, including the Castillo trade that I mentioned. And so they got rid of a lot of capital because they're going for it. They're pushing their chips in. Uh, and speaking of that, the Padres and Braves have been obviously as well. The Padres used to have the top farm in baseball and they've traded away almost all of it. Um, there's not a whole lot left there. It's been very much picked over. So they're 29th. And the Braves, you know, have done it by trades and done it by graduations. But to their credit, they've graduated Strider and Michael Harris and most recently Von Grissom. And all these guys are making an impact major level. So that's taken away a lot of the capital from the farm side of the ledger. So there's not much left there in the Atlanta system. But because they've been so good at developing that I wouldn't be surprised if they start to creep back up again in the years to come. Yeah, I don't have too much to add on those bottom five. I guess the Braves... Yeah, like you say, they they just have so much at the big league level, and they've locked up pretty much everyone there. So it's okay, I guess. A little, it's a little bit more okay for them, especially coming off a World Series as well, uh, to have a weaker farm because they're pretty locked in at the big league level. Not every position, and not everybody's going to perform perfectly, and so they will have to fill some gaps here and there. But they have a really solid core that's going to be there for the next handful of years. So they don't need to stress about that end of it as much right now Mm -hmm. um comparing them to the mariners where another big part that that you didn't mention of the mariners falling down the list is obviously graduating julio yeah and (laughs) he's locked in there forever now but they maybe you know especially with someone like kelnick not working out as well and george kirby's been fantastic for them but some of their other pitching prospects haven't quite gotten it going um and they do have some holes to fill and so they're a team that might need to look toward uh, toward the free agent market to to add some offense to shore up the rotation and, and the rest of the pitching staff they don't have as much trade capital to do it with but they still do have some holes that need to be addressed uh, more so than at the braves i would say um i think that's all i have for the bottom five but there are a couple teams in the middle i want to just briefly touch on mm-hmm. the white Sox have moved all the way up to 20 and mm-hmm. we had them dead last i'm pretty sure uh, earlier mm-hmm. in the off or in the season excuse me and they've had good performances out of a lot of guys on their farm. And, you know, some of this is that we factored in the 2022 draft guys as well. Right. Um, but it's it's interesting because they are in a weird spot. They've had a disappointing year and there's, they're kind of in that. Do we rebuild? Do we push and go for it? That kind of gray area right now. And you could look at it two ways. You could look at it as, hey, they could do kind of a a partial rebuild here. And since the farm is already pretty good... You know, if they trade a couple guys, they could get it into that kind of 200 million range. And then they're kind of right on the outside of the top 10 on the list. And and some of those guys are getting close to being big league ready. So it could just be like, you know, a one or two year turnaround for them if they were to rebuild. Or you could say, sweet, now we have prospect capital. Let's keep one or two of these guys that we think will make an impact for us at the big league level. Colson Montgomery's had a pretty big year, I think. Um couple guys like that you keep them around trade some of the other ones now that their value has kind of risen and really push our chips in and try and make it work with this core so that's you could go either way with it but no matter how you look at it it's a good thing that they've jumped up the list so much uh despite you know not being a seller at the deadline or making any big trades to to jump up the list 
Um, speaking of yeah. big trades, the Nationals are at 15 and the A's are at 19. And those were two of the bigger sellers at this deadline. And it, that just kind of shows you that they're going to be in it for a little bit here. Um, part of that is both teams graduating some guys. Yeah. But they're pretty horrible major league teams and they're still kind of middle of the pack in these farm system rankings. So there's going to be a few more rough years ahead of them where they're drafting uh, early in the draft and, and trading away big league talent and climbing up this uh, farm system rankings list. So it's, it's the beginning of the rebuild really for both of those teams still. Um, I think the last couple teams I want to mention Yankees and Mets are right next to each other at 17 and 18. Uh, they're really essentially tied here and again that's not counting any graduations or anything so i know they've both graduated some guys but i don't think brett Beatty has fallen off the list yet for the mets since he didn't play too much before being hurt um but it's just impressive that these two powerhouse organizations financially and pretty solid big league teams they also have respectable farms they're in the middle of the pack they haven't because they have all that money that they can spend and because they've made some smart moves they don't have to trade all of their young talent to to supplement the big league team. They can do both ways and, and keep a, a solid flow of young talent going while still improving the big league team with money. And last one I want to mention are the Red Sox at 12. They have a really good farm. It's just going to be bridging the current core to get to that farm. And, and that's it's a bit of a similar spot to the Giants, I guess, but the Red Sox have more of that immediate talent to answer questions about the Devers and Bogarts that we talked about and what is Chris Sale and what do they do with the rotation right now and so they have some really impact players on the way here and we saw Tristan Casas get called up Marcelo Meyer is going to be working his way through the system as is Nick York and a couple other big names there Brian Bayo's with the team he's impressive so they have a really strong farm I think their future is pretty bright uh, but yeah, those are the main standouts to me. Is there anyone I missed? Yeah, I mean, just want to briefly touch on the Cardinals. You know, they were speculative uh, potential trade partners for the Soto deal because they have a lot of a lot of young talent as well. They're number ten in this system. Um, you know, they've got Jordan Walker and a couple of interesting young pitchers, and so um, they're you know they're the type of farm that continues to develop. It's the old you know cardinal devil magic way um so and the cubs are ninth i mentioned them in passing but you know they're creeping up they've got some interesting prospects there um you know on this sort of downside the twins have struggled austin martin's been a bit of a disappointment uh you know simeon woods richardson's been a bit disappointed so the two guys they got back for burrios have not really panned out so far um <clears throat> The Blue Jays, a lot of people think they have a good farm, but they're really only talking about, say, Gabriel Moreno, who in fact has graduated in our model. And there's not a whole lot there, actually. So they're at number 24, and the Angels are at 25, and they are, again, another one of these teams that are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Terrible MLB farm, terrible, excuse me, terrible MLB uh, team, and a really bad system as well. So <clears throat> good luck to the new owner, or whoever that may be on that one. Yeah, I think that uh, that pretty much summarizes. We, we missed a couple teams in here, but go go check it out. The, the Pirates are doing well. The the Brewers are middle of the pack. The Tigers, yikes. Phillies, yikes. <laughs> go go read the article. It'll be linked in the show notes. <laughs> okay. All right. Do you have anything else to uh, add before we close out? No. Um. We'll be um. 
you know, we'll be uh, writing some more articles. Like I said, I'm going to do a deep dive on those, um, you know, busts in the model that you might, that might surprise you, the Joe Adele's of the world. Um, so look for that. Um, and then once the uh, regular season ends, we'll do another update as well to see if any numbers have changed. And, uh, and then we'll get ready for the off season while we're watching the playoffs. Sweet. Sounds good to me. That'll do it for this week, then. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.